Good morning, everybody. Good, good to see you this morning. A couple questions for you. Why is it that humans aren't like plants that propagate by having pollen blown through the air? And why is it that humans are not like deer that only mate during one small season of the year, the rut? Why is it that humans have the most nerve sensors in their entire body at the pleasure centers of their sex organs? And why is it that virtually all humans long to have sexual relationships even after childbearing years? And why is it that the perfect person, Jesus Christ, never got married and never had sex? Well, we're in the series we're calling Polarized, where we're talking about four ethical pillars of the Christian life. They are economic justice, sanctity of life, racial unity, and biblical sexuality, the topic that we're talking about today. And you will know that two sides of the political spectrum claim two of these topics, and then the other side claims the other two. But what we're learning through this series is that all four of these topics should be the focus and energy of the Christian in our lives and in our church and in our world. And that should inform the way we interact in our political and polarized world. You know, our hope for this series is that we're able to think through the questions, not with wisdom from the left or wisdom from the right, but we want wisdom from above. Now, the topic today is biblical sexuality. As Pastor Chad said a few weeks ago, each one of these topics will probably make you squirm a little bit in your seat, but a lot less than I'm squirming up here, okay? So I don't know why I get the hard ones, but I feel like I do. All right, when talking about biblical sexuality, the question of why often comes up. Why would God set up the world in the way that he has? Why would God affirm this, but not affirm that? Well, all of God's commands, remember, flow from his character. All of God's commands we find in the Bible flow from his character. They're not arbitrary. It's not like God said, well, okay, I'll, um, I'll be cool with this, but not that. Okay, you can do this, but not that. No, no. Everything, all of our ethic flows from God's person, his character. See, just as the roots of a tree provide nutrients for the trunk and the leaves, so God's character provides the substance for ethics and personal application. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to walk through this topic from three perspectives. First, we're going to look at the theology of sexuality. We'll look at God's intention for how he made the world. Next, we're going to look at the ethics of sexuality, God's expectation for our lives. And finally, we're going to look at personal application, our expression depending on the various seasons of life. So there's a problem with us understanding this very important topic. It's because these questions have become muddied by the political and polarized narratives. See, we uh, hear in our world two stories, two narratives that we hear about sexuality. See, one side tells us that in order to be a complete and whole person, you must gratify your sexual desires. So whatever sexual desire you may have, whatever means necessary, gratify those because gratifying our sexual urges, that is the path to joy. Well, there's another story that says in order to be a complete and whole person, you have to fulfill others' expectations. 
right? You need to get married, you need to have a stable job, move to a house in the suburb and have 2.5 children, right? Fulfill expectations. That's the path to joy. But the problem is most narratives hold that in common, that is your sex life is the path to joy. But the Bible tells us a different story. It's not the gratification of desires or the fulfillment of expectations that brings joy. Rather, joy comes from knowing and serving Jesus Christ. And that truth cuts across the political platforms. See, God's given us sexuality as a means to know to love and to serve him. So what we're going to do is we're looking at God's intention, a theology of sexuality from the book of Ephesians, God's expectation, the ethics of sexuality from 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, and then our application, the expression of sexuality through 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So before we get into the text, I want to pray for us, kind of settle our minds and hearts, and we'll jump into God's word. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are so good and loving. Lord, we could be left without any sort of way to know who you are. But you've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. So we thank you that we get to know you. We get to love you. We get to serve you. Lord, we know in this topic it's hard. All of us are broken. But Lord, would you give us fresh insight and wisdom through your word by the power of the Holy Spirit so you would nudge us in the direction that you go, that you would have us go so that this church and these people will be a light on a hill, a city on a hill, a light in the darkness to a broken and confused world around us. So Lord, help us not be confused ourselves and know your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are all members of his body. So here we are jumping in midstream to the writer, uh, the writer of this book, the Apostle Paul, his argument, answering questions from the church in the city of Ephesus. Now, he's talking about walking in love with our fellow human, and, and we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, you know, because everyone, what we talked about the last two weeks, are equal in the sight of God because we are equally made in the image of God. But the Bible uses language comparing a woman and a man to Christ in his church. So this marriage idea of a married woman and a married man, he's beginning to kind of narrow in the argument from people in general to a married relationship in particular, where the wife functions uh, like the church and the husband functions like Christ. 
Wives are to follow the lead of the husband. Husbands are to love uh, their wives by laying down their lives for their wives. Okay. Now here is the next few verses really I want us to focus on. This is where God explains to us why. Why does he want men and women to be married and have children. What's the, what's the theology? What does this tell us about God? Look with me, verse 31. <clears throat> Therefore, <clears throat> a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a, a quotation from the book of Genesis talking about the physical union within marriage becoming one flesh. Now, this this sexual expression, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see here, this passage would blow the mind of a reader in that day. You see, in the Greek context, marriage was for the purpose of working a trade, of bearing children, of assuring your station in life. It was not for sexual fulfillment. Now, sexual fulfillment, that was just something you gratify, an itch to be scratched, and temple prostitutes and other forms of gratification were easily available and encouraged. But what the scripture is saying is that marriage, particularly the sexual intimacy between a man and a woman in marriage, was designed, it was engineered to be a picture of Christ and the church. The love, the desire, the fulfillment, the longing we experience in a marriage is to illustrate to humanity the relationship that Christ and the church would one day have. You see, God is saying that, listen, guys, I have reversed engineered marriage. See, it wasn't like God created the world, created Adam and Eve, said, hey, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And he stands back and there's Adam and Eve enjoying marital sexual fulfillment. And it's like he goes, you know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of what Christ and the church is going to be in the future. Wow, i got to remind Paul to write that in his letter to the book of Ephesus. No, no, no. He goes, what can I do to show my love for my church? What can I weave into the fabric of humanity to illustrate the longing and the desire and the urge that I have to be with my people I got an idea. Sex. I want to come up with this thing called sex that that humans are going to experience. In order to propagate the world, you have to have it. And it's going to happen within marriage. And I am reverse engineering my love for my people and illustrating it through marital sexual intimacy. See, God has designed sex. He's designed our sexuality so that we can know him better. And that transcends people who are married, you know, say you're pre-married, you're married, after married, single, whatever the case is. That longing and desire and hunger is meant to show us God's love for us. C.S. 
Since God designed sexuality in this particular way to show us his love for us, he has expectations for how we are to use our sexuality. See, as I mentioned earlier, humanity is made in the image of God, unique from all creation. One aspect of being made in the image of God is that humans are a fusion of body and soul. Like hydrogen and oxygen come together to make water, you can't separate the two without dramatically changing what it means to be human. And because of this, sex is always more than physical. Look at me at the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 6. So you just hop back a couple books. 1 Corinthians, chapter 6. Starting in verse 13, the second part of verse 13. It says this, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that our bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. See, our sexuality is designed for us to know God. It's also designed for us to love God. In every age, especially this age, how followers of Jesus use their sexuality may be the primary way that they show love and devotion to Christ. We see in our culture, often the way we use sexuality according to God's design or against God's design is the dividing line between those who are willing to come underneath God's authority and those who are still kicking against the gouds. When you use your sexuality in the way God designed, the Bible says you glorify God and you strengthen his body. So... um, Recently, my mother-in-law is uh, moving, and she's moving to a smaller uh, house, and she no longer has space for the Randall family grand piano. So she has offered to give it to us. We're like, great, my wife is a wonderful pianist and used to teach uh, piano lessons. And so we got it delivered to our house about two weeks ago. And when we got it delivered, our five-year-old Judah, our four-year-old Rebecca, and a little bit our one-year-old Hannah, they go, oh, this is the coolest new toy that Nana just sent us. We're going to bang on the keys. I'm going to climb on the bag. This is awesome. Now, we had to sit down with them. Say, all right, Judah, Rebecca, this is a very important and very valuable instrument. It's a tool to make beautiful music. Now, if you don't use it in the way it is designed, it will hurt the piano and we won't be able 
to enjoy it as a family for years to come. And not only that, it's dangerous for you. Like the little cover that covers the keys could fall down on little fingers. The cover on the back of the piano could collapse on little arms. So we said, Rebecca, Judah, you may only use this instrument in the times and in the ways that we instruct. And that is for your good, for your enjoyment, as well as for your safety. So after that conversation, our children obeyed our every instruction. No, no. About 15 minutes later, we hear our one-year-old screaming, ah! and I run over there, and her little finger was stuck underneath the fallboard. Now, thankfully, one of our children like slowly lowered it on her finger, which wasn't crushed. But you see, our intention is to use that instrument for Maybe generations to come. Maybe they'll get it one day. And they will learn the piano and hear music produced in our house. See, a piano is a beautiful instrument, but it must be used in the way that it was designed. Or permanent and enduring consequences will happen both to its use and to its beauty. You see, God's intention is that we use our sexuality to know him in deeper ways. And God's expectation for our sexuality is that we use it in the way he designed. And that is a means by which we love him. So I want to use these next few minutes to clearly articulate God's expectation for how we are to use our sexuality. You know, because sexuality is one of the primary ways we show love and devotion to God, I don't want anyone in this room to be misguided. Right? We, don't, we don't have enough time to go through all the nuances of every, every aspect of Christian sexual ethics. But what I'm about to share is the position that the Church of Jesus Christ has held from the beginning of its formation, at, from the disciples of Jesus, all the way to present day, in all locations, in all traditions, for all time, except for the last maybe 20 to 30 years in small, very small pockets of Western society. Okay. But bef- uh, so God has designed sex, okay, for an exclusive marriage between one man and one woman. So that means any sexual act outside of marriage between one man and one woman is outside of God's design and is, according to the Bible, sin. So that means any sort of premarital, extramarital, or homosexual sex is not within God's design, according to his word. And I know for some of us in this room and some of us watching online, That sounds bigoted. That sounds narrow-minded. Some would even consider it hate speech. What about those who are single or or have fixed same-sex attraction? Isn't this unfair? Isn't this unkind? Isn't this bigoted? Well, instead of me trying to defend it, let's look back at God's word. So let's continue into 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and see how the Apostle Paul would respond to that critique. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So someone wrote him this and he's responding to it. 
But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except for perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. All right, so, so Paul's exhorting the husbands and wives and affirming the sexual aspect of their marriage and the mutual submission to each other. But this next section is what I want to highlight. I really want to focus on this. because I think it's easy to miss. But before we do that, I want to remind you of the narratives, that these stories that keep being told to us, right? On one side, the story is this. In order to be a complete and whole person, you must gratify your desires. So gratifying your sexual desires, that's the path to joy. And anything that stops that is something just be pushed aside. Okay. The other side tells you that, that in order to be a complete and whole person, you must fulfill others' expectations, right? You get married, have a stable job, move to the suburbs, have 2.5 children. So fulfilling expectations, that is the path to joy. But the narrative, but the, both narratives hold this in common, that your sex life is the path to joy. But as we will see in a moment, the Bible presents a different story. Look at me at verse six. Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. Apostle Paul speaking. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. I'm going to read that one again. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Hop down to verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Okay. The Bible says that your sex life is not the path to joy. Rather, a life of service and devotion to Christ, whatever your station, that is the path to joy. These verses cut at the heart of both of those political narratives because Paul's saying this. He's saying it's better, it's optimal to stay single than be married if you can. He is saying that singleness is a gift from God. That marriage is good, but marriage is suboptimal. If you are to live a life of full devotion and unhindered service to Christ, and your devotion to Christ is shown by holiness through your sexuality. That means that those who are not married 
or who do not want to be married to someone of the opposite sex, like someone who has fixed same-sex attraction, they have a greater potential for joy in Christ than someone who is married. Look down at chapter 7, verse 28. But if you do marry, talking to the unmarried again and the widows, if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet, those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that, right? And I hear a hearty amen from Deborah Stone in the back. God's expectation is that we use our sexuality to love God and to experience joy in God. And people who commit to singleness for whatever reason are in a privileged place to experience true, abiding, lasting, enduring, fulfilling joy. And maybe you're here, maybe you're watching online, and for whatever reason you've committed to Lifelong singleness to celibacy. Maybe, maybe some of you, I'm sure some of us online experience a, a fixed same-sex attraction. And you've done the courageous thing to say, I am going to believe the story of the Bible. That if I commit my life to holiness before the Lord and service to him, that I can have a joyful, fulfilled life. And if you are single, even if you've done that courageous thing, I can imagine that many of you still feel like you are on the periphery of our church. You feel like you're kind of looking in on on the outside. You don't quite have your real Christian ticket stamped because you don't have a ring on your finger. And I want to say, you may feel that way, and you're probably right. Because we have not done the job that the Bible tells us to, to raise up the single people in our midst, to leadership, to invest in them fully. And I want to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the, for by, on behalf of the leadership, the pastors, on behalf of our church, Because we have floated along the tide since 1950s, believing that real Christians are married Christians. Real Christians get married, move to the suburbs, have 2.5 kids, and those are really the people you can trust. That is wrong, because Jesus Christ, if we responded like that, our Savior Jesus Christ and the greatest theologian apart from Christ, whoever the Apostle Paul, we would keep them on the periphery. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry for those here who are single, that we have not pursued you to raise you up in leadership. And I'm sorry for those who are single, that you may feel like people look, with, look at you askance because you aren't married. And I want to invite those single people to commit. If you feel like, oh, I could do it. I could stay single. I think I could do it. I would invite you to commit your lives to the Lord in lifelong celibacy. And I want to commit as a church to come alongside you and raise you up for missions, raise you up for church planning, for evangelism in some of the most difficult and hard to reach places throughout the globe. We want a refreshment. We want to be made new as a church by obeying the Bible and affirming those 
who are single among us and who are committed to a lifelong devotion to Jesus Christ. So I am sorry and I want to repent on behalf of the church and we want to pursue Christ with you. <laughs> Forgive us. Forgive us. Well, let's pivot. Let's pivot toward our application, the expression of sexuality. How, how do we express this sexuality? How do we, what do we do giving our current life stage in the season of life? Where? Well, look, at, look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter four, starting in verse three. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we, are, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. See, God's will is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you be holy and pure and honorable, that you do not harm another person in this area. But I don't know about you, but I don't know many people, myself included, that can look at our, my sexual expression presently and in my past and say, oh, I'm holy. Or I'm unblemished, unstained, unbesmirched. Look into my life and you will see someone white as snow. And I imagine you're here and you probably feel like me. Man, this is an area of my life where I have some of the deepest regrets. I have some of the, 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 the widest wounds. Some of the biggest brokenness in my life. We even see in our culture, this area of sexuality is ruptured. It is so broken from the Me Too movement to the percentage of fatherless children to movies that sexualize young girls. We are broken and our society is broken. We're all broken. And maybe you are here or you're watching online and you feel like a grand piano. That has been so used and so abused and so broken and so out of tune. You just feel like you should just be pushed to the curb and have the trash guys pick you up and throw you away. That you're just shattered, worthless. Well, I'm going to close with this story, especially for those who, who feel that way. I want to tell you a story about jazz pianist Keith Jarrett. You've probably heard some of his music. So on a frigid night of January 24th, 1975, Keith Jarrett arrived in the German town of Cologne to perform a solo improvisational jazz concert to a small but excited group of fans. But there was a major problem. 
when Jared arrived, the piano that was on stage was in horrible shape. It was out of tune. The edges of the keyboard were almost unusable and the foot pedals malfunctioned. Okay, it was virtually an unplayable piano because it had been used and abused as a practice piano by local rehearsals. But since this was the only piano available, Jarrett agreed to perform still. He did his best to try to get things in tune and adjust, but nothing worked. So at 11.30 at night, he agreed to perform still. And what happened over the next 90 minutes changed the course of piano performance ever since. You see, because of the limitations of the piano, Jared had to completely adjust the way he played. He had to stay within the middle of the register. He had to force the keys down. And he had to adjust his rhythm to cover over the fact that he did not have any foot pedals to use. But by adjusting the way he would normally play, the beauty that came out of this piano startled everyone. And because of the genius of Jarrett and the brokenness of that piano, Jarrett produced one of the greatest and currently the best-selling solo piano albums of all time. This concert forever changed the trajectory of jazz, concert, gospel, and improvisational piano, and inspired a generation of pianists to try new things with a very old instrument. All because this master was not willing to give up on this broken piano. If a jazz master can bring such beauty from brokenness, what can the master of the universe do in your life? All of us are broken. None of us are perfect. That's why God sent his son. He sent his son to live the perfect life. Unmarried, unstained from sexual sin. He died on the cross on our behalf so that we could receive his righteousness and he rose again. And what he offers you and me, he says, no matter what shape you're in, come to me and I will turn your brokenness into something far more beautiful than you would ever imagine. That's what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, and he offers it to everyone. I can't imagine there aren't scores of us here and scores of us watching online who feel broken beyond repair. Well, maybe God is going to use your brokenness to speak a better word, to play a different tune so that a broken world would see what Christ can do to a life in the hands of the master. Have you put yourself in the hands of the master of the universe. Today is the day to become new. All you have to do is recognize your brokenness. Say, Jesus, forgive me. Cleanse me. I give my life to you. Restore me and I commit it all to you. 
make something beautiful out of my brokenness. If you are taking that first step and you want to follow Jesus for the first time, text that number on the screen, 440-276-5575. Text Jesus. We would love to walk with you in next steps. Well, usually this time of the message, we kind of give you some four or five next steps to take in your life to kind of grow in this. But I feel like this area is one of those things that's kind of customized. I think the Holy Spirit's probably nudging you and leading you and guiding you into into next steps. But I will offer some ideas to you. I'm going to close with this. I would encourage you to invest in some biblical information. There's some great resources out there, especially over the past 10 or 15 years where Christians have really thought deeply about sexuality. One I'd recommend is The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller. This is a book we use in our premarital course, but it is great for singles, married, divorced, widows, whatever the case is. It is an excellent book. Also, you'll see some uh, Christian thinkers on the screen. These are uh, men and women who've experienced same-sex attraction. And they've written about their experiences and devotion to Christ. So uh, Jackie Hill Perry and Rosaria Butterfield are excellent um, thinkers and writers. And then Christopher Yuan and Sam Alberry, both of them are committed, uh, lifelong, celibate people who experience fixed same-sex attraction. So they have a great perspective um, in this area. And uh, another area, idea Invest in biblical relationships. You know, one thing that Deborah and I have been convicted about is since we've had been married and have kids, a lot of the people in our in our kitchen that we have over for dinner and they, they kind of look like us. They got young families, they've got young kids, and we realize, you know, we're we need to broaden our relationships to include married and single, young and old. So that's the next step that we want to take. And then finally. Invest in some biblical hope. Remind yourself daily. Even say this to yourself. My hope is not in my sex life, but in my eternal life. My hope is not in my sex life, but in my eternal life. Only in Christ will we experience deep and abiding joy. No matter if you're single, married, otherwise. Well, I'm going to invite you to stand up. We, I'm going to pray for us. And then after uh, my prayer, the team's going to lead us in one more song. So... Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for your kindness, for your love, for your strength, and the way you have designed our world. Thank you that you've given us a means to know you through your word. Thank you that for those who it is our station in life, thank you for us that you've given us marriage. Thank you that for those who are um, committed to lifelong celibacy, thank you for their courage. Forgive us, forgive us as a church for not valuing that, that step, for not valuing that commitment, for not leveraging those people for, you, for, for uh, service to you and their joy. So Lord, would we, be a, would we be a people who are different? We don't want wisdom. We don't, we don't want to follow the story on the left or the story on the right. We want, to, we want to follow the story from above. Help us to do that. Help us to live lives holy and pure, fully devoted to you knowing that one day you will come again, restore all things. And as your words say, it won't be marriage in heaven, but we will have you. So maybe long for that day. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the joy that you give us in the Lord. And we pray this in his wonderful name. Amen.